Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. As parents, there's enough to worry about and plenty to figure out alone. So isn't it nice to find answers? To worry less with people who get it. Saving for college is a journey made better when guided by experience. At collegewell.com, we have expert guidance to get you on the right path. From financial planners to financial aid advisors at colleges nationwide. Visit collegewell.com. We're changing the way families feel about and approach college savings. He says, live stream is offline. Why is that? Live stream offline. Yeah. Refresh. Oh, so yeah. Maybe that's it. Ah! We are live streaming. Oh, my gosh. Shit, I'm so embarrassed. Hey, guys. Sorry, we, we've had some technical difficulties. Maybe we already said that on live stream. I don't know what's live and what's not. We've actually uh, started this a couple times and, and got a couple minutes in each yeah. time. Yeah. Um, it's my fault. I was messing around, changing IP addresses, trying to work out some things so that people can call in. We can interview them on Skype, and I'm still working on that. So, as I said, I'm sorry. We don't have a tech guy. We have Jack, and Jack doesn't know what the hell he's doing. So, Jack Noosh. I'm just kind of like feeling through the darkness. But anyway, um, I want to introduce our guest. Yes. Clint. Uh, Clint Sportman, everybody. Uh, and we'll get into Clint's history and, you know, all of his dealings and nefarious goings-ons uh, very quickly, uh, but I want to take a real quick second uh, to plug a charity event um, and a raffle. It's a charity raffle. So uh, I'm in a motorcycle club that's uh, all former rangers called Killer Man Sons, um, and we are doing a benefit uh, this weekend for... Uh, 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 the, I'm sorry. We're doing a benefit this weekend for the Fallen Ranger Fund. Um, so this fund helps, you know, uh, rangers and who, who who get injured uh, uh, or the families if you know if uh, they pass. Um, and there, it's a raffle. I believe it, it is ten dollars a ticket um, or six for fifty dollars. Now here's what you can win in this raffle. That's what you want to know, right? What what's in it for me? First off, let me tell you. There are only uh, 500 tickets. So chances of winning something aren't, you know, it's better than a lottery. If you play the lottery, you should do this. Um, if you don't play the lottery, you should do this. Um, so here are the, the possible prizes. Uh, you can get a hand-forged knife. Um, you can get a, what are we doing? A uh, 300 blackout carbine pistol. A pistol? Yes. Oh, is it like an AR? That's... Has the buttstock removed? It's a 300. It's technically a pistol. Yeah. It's a 300 <laughs> blackout carbine pistol. 
Um, if you are in an area where you cannot have a weapon, uh, you can, uh, a pistol, uh, you can you can definitely note that uh, on your entry fee or on your entry. Um, and then if you don't note it and you win it and you can't have it, let us know and we'll we'll, we'll do something. Don't, don't look at me. Well, I, well, I can't really. I'm not finding the EU seats. I, I, I can't really speak for. I can't really speak for the 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 uh, leadership of the club and what they'll do, but they're not going to leave you hanging. Um, so, so that's that's one of the prizes: a hand forged tomahawk, uh, a really nice range kit, uh, or a hand forged hunting knife. Now, uh, Jack is putting the link. Uh, to put it in the uh, comments uh, that you guys can see it live, and I'll put it in the YouTube description. Uh, yeah, in the description after we finish the live stream. But I'll bump it in the comments right now, so you can go take a look. Yeah. So, uh, and can you pin that to the top? Uh, I don't know if I can or not. Well, let me take a look. Okay. So the link is up. Uh, so it's a great fund. It's it's a great cause, um, and. Uh, the the link that I'm giving you is to a Facebook page. It goes to uh, Ranger Supernaw, who is one of the officers, and um, uh, he has instructions for like it's a PayPal. Send him the PayPal, include your phone number, um, and he'll take he'll take pictures of the tickets for you so that you know that it's legit. You have tickets that they're going in the thing, and then um, and it's not their fault if I win everything. Uh, anyway, Rig. Um, Rig. so um, please use the friends and family option because, like I said, all this is going to charity. Add your phone number. Um, you again, I, there might be a way to make a note if you if you live in an area where you can't have uh, the pistol, make a note. And you live in a communist state, and um, <laughs> and perhaps if they draw your name for the pistol and uh, you don't or you win it. Uh, they'll they'll get you the next thing, or I'm not sure how, what they'll do, but they'll make you whole. I promise. Um, so that is that. <sighs> Were you able to pin that? Uh, no, I can't pin it, but I put it in there. People will definitely see it. I can post it. It'll <laughs> make you happy. Anyway, uh, so anyway, <laughs> uh, our guest today is Clint Sporman. Uh, Clint has a, a, a really fascinating history when it comes. He's spent. A large portion of his life in law enforcement. He has a fascinating history when it comes to um, both uh, combat shooting, point shooting, and then also hand to hand. And we're talking about gutter fighting. We're talking about the hand to hand style that was pretty much, fighting. yeah, uh, uh, the type of hand to hand that was pretty much developed by um, Applegate and Fairbairn and then Sykes uh, during World War II to prop the OSS. And for those of you who you know, don't know, the, the OSS was created, uh, the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA, uh, was created uh, to infiltrate enemy lines uh, in very, very small teams, uh, like generally three-man teams, I believe. The Jedbergs. The Jedbergs. Yeah. French, British, and American. Yeah. Oh, right. Uh, and, but were the, but there, were, there were other teams than just the Jedbergs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Essex teams and uh, and then OSS was like a basically almost separate endeavor. Oh, was it? okay. Yeah. So I stand corrected. I should have I should have reread Patrick O'Donnell's book before. Uh, and a guy named Irwin wrote a book about the Jedbergs. Okay, really good. Um, so the idea was that they had to teach these these people, um, you know, communication skills because they they were uh, generally like radio back uh, 
intelligence. Um, they hooked up with partisans to help the partisans. Uh, they were collecting, you know, they were collecting intelligence. And so they had a lot of training to do in a very short period of time. So this form of, of one-point shooting mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, also hand-to-hand um, -hand combat was created where it's, it's um, I mean, Applegate is basically, kill, be killed is basically a 12 move, isn't it? I mean, it was short. Fundamentally, yeah. yeah. He broke it down even more so than Fairburn. So yeah, yeah. So, um, so they wanted to make these people as lethal as possible in as short a time as possible. And where, you know, where obviously these people would not be able to go into a prepared fight like a UFC um, and, and go hand to hand with somebody who, who is into combat sports. The idea of being asked for your papers at a checkpoint and just unleashing with uh, you know a, a flurry of very savage blows, uh, specifically directed to certain areas, um, was something. And they were taught how to make improvised weapons. You know, rolling up newspapers, yeah. wetting them down, letting them harden, and, and you, the British. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so that that's a little bit about Clint's background, but we're gonna we're gonna let him yeah. tell you. Uh, you know, telling yeah. you all about it. Yeah, like, I'd like to hear you begin at kind of the beginning of the story and, you know, your longtime mentor, Carl, <laughs> um, is somebody you learned from and, and studied under, and you kind of carry his legacy forward to this day. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, basically how you guys met, how you met Carl and how that relationship grew and your background in martial arts. Well, we can just skip ahead to the really important part where we met. Yeah. But, anyway, <laughs> <Do I> yeah. <laughs> Uh, basically, I, I got into the martial arts at a young age. My uh, father did Japanese karate, and uh, so watching him doing his kata and throwing punches and being five years old and running up to him trying to grab his leg, <laughs> getting flung off, and you know, get out of here, leave me alone. But uh, so that kind of sparked my interest. Uh, obviously, Bruce Lee was big when I was younger, so obviously watching all the Bruce Lee movies and all that stuff. So that's what got me interested. And then um, skipping forward, I did other martial arts with various other people, uh, nothing too serious, never competed, never did competition, uh, just wasn't my thing. Nothing wrong with it, but it's just not my thing. And then um, around 1992, a buddy of mine that had been in the Navy, uh, my buddy Steve, he said, hey, why don't you come train with me? And I got a guy that's the real, the real deal. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know. So uh, we wanted to take a drive over to Paramus, New Jersey, and uh, we're heading there. And I only knew a little bit about this guy at the time, Carl Sesteri. And uh, so we get there, we're walking down a basement in a church. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going into a church to learn how to kill people. This is interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like, I forget, it's the weirdest sensation, yeah. So I get down there, there's this guy in the corner, Fu Manchu, he's smoking a cigarette, his Newports, you know, typical Carl. And uh, I'm like, this is the guy, you know? <laughs> and the next thing I know, my buddy Steve, he's like 6'2", built like a brick shit house, big guy. Again, was in the Navy, and uh, he just put the cigarette down and said, okay, let's start. And I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> and next thing I know, he's beating the shit out of Steve, kneeing him the balls, chin jab, axe-in, walking from one side of the room to the other, and doing a number on him. I mean, you know, I thought the guy had padding on him, but he didn't, you know? But that was Carl, you know, you're gonna feel the pain, you know? and. Uh, so that started in 92 in Paramus, and then um, trained with him a couple times there, and then... Uh, now, I, I, let me ask you a question. Uh, having studied different types of martial arts, all very formalized, I mm -hmm. take it, all yeah. very formal, yeah. uh, what was your initial impression when you saw 
what Carl was doing. Basically, the, that's a, I don't like the term World War II combatives. Uh, unfortunately, that's what we're referred to, what we do. We do a lot more than that. Um, because then people want to just box you know that they just do that old stuff and they're far from wrong but basically it's the mindset and the attitude that you develop through just hard training and it could be anything it just doesn't have to be edge hand blows chin jabs and all that it's just to develop that mindset and everything with world war ii combatives military combatives in general i don't know about today but back then was to attack nothing was purely like defensive you developed that attacking mindset to go after the enemy and take them off the count whether that was unconscious you know, to drag them back and gather intelligence from them, or just kill them outright. Like uh, Dave was saying before, you get stopped at a checkpoint, you're operating by yourself, they might only have a dagger on them, okay? Or a pair of brass knuckles. And I've heard plenty of stories from vets that had to, unfortunately, use some of these techniques. And, you know, you weren't sparring, you know, you weren't taking up a stance, you went from zero to 100, you know? And um, Maybe part of that because, like, they were training guys, like, very quickly. Very quickly. Fair and sending them yeah. into the field. Fairburn's basic course. I mean, there was a longer course, but the actual combatives, point shooting, combat shooting, was three days. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for a couple hours each day. So they had, like, a weekend. And then, hey, you were getting dropped off in German-occupied France, etc., to set up with the partisans and, you know, and teach. And, you know, Britain at the time was pretty much... You know, they didn't have any weapons. Everything was left in the in the island, Dunkirk. So they were teaching these people how to use pick forks, you know, and improvise weapons. You don't need weapons. Yeah, you don't need weapons. Yeah. <laughs> weapons rule the roost. Hand in hand's cool. Yeah, you know what? Against a Nazi war machine. <laughs> weapons rule the roost. This will do a lot more damage than hand to hand combat. But uh, anyway, so uh, Fairburn's course was like three days. Um, eventually, uh, originally, sites in Fairburn were teaching in Britain, and um, they taught all different units. Uh, and everything that they taught during World War II was a direct reflection of what Fairburn and Sykes learned while they were in Shanghai, which was the biggest waterfront city in the, in the world at the time. A lot of espionage, a lot of intrigue, there was a lot of assassination. Uh, there was a big spy ring at the time working out of Shanghai. So there wasn't anything Fairburn didn't see. When people think of law enforcement, they think of what they see today. Fairburn seen it all. You well, know, Japanese, you know. And he started really at the, was it the, the he started Te technically, like the first SWAT team. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, the Shanghai Reserve Unit. Um, the shield, which we called the stone because it was so heavy. Um, I actually got footage of Fairburn. Guy holding the shield, and Fairburn just pulls out the 1911 and pops a couple rounds into it. Fairburn was known doing stuff like that. And uh, they had bulletproof vests for raiding parties when they do raids at night. And um, yeah, the history is very fascinating. And people think today that this stuff is uh, old or, you know, they reinvented the wheel, but this stuff's been... You know, well, around a long time. And I'm not so familiar with Sykes' history, but I know Fairbairn, he had he had a black belt in championships, like in multiple like living in Asia, like he had oh, yeah, yeah. He, he he studied these and and when it came to creating a system for these people, he took all of that and yeah. he's like, Okay, yeah, that's all good, yeah. but this is what you need. Yeah. Wasn't there a system called Bartitsu or Bartitsu, something? yeah, that just came up the other day was uh, on a forum, supposedly I don't really want the forms anymore. I've been to those yeah, clubs. It's, they're more likely to be actors, to be honest with you. But that had no influence on Fairburn, Martitsu, uh, Defendu. There's also Defendo, just to clear some things up real quick. Defendu, with the U at the end, was Fairburn. Defendo was Bill Underwood from Canada. And he had nothing to do with Campax, by the way. That's a, a more history stuff. But, you know, Fairburn's seen it, done it. He was in over 600 armed and unarmed close quarters combat situations, life and death. 
Um, and this is all before World War II. This, this is, is all World Shanghai. And yeah, he was with the British Royal Marines. He started his career with the British Royal Marines, I believe it was 1901 to 1907. Then he went over to the Shanghai Police in 1907, and they worked his way up to the Assistant Commissioner of Shanghai Municipal Police. Spoke multiple languages, and he just did teach hand-to-hand -hand combat and shooting. I mean, he taught at universities, he lectured. You know, he knew a lot about the Orient. He spent you know, over 30 years there, so there wasn't much that he hadn't seen. You know, and, and I think it's important to note that, like, Shanghai at the time, like, because uh, for people who don't know, Shanghai at the time <laughs> was, uh, it, it was like most Isley spaceport. Uh, it, it, it was, <laughs> like, every, like, every nation had representation yeah. there, um, and they were, you know, they had armed forces there, and there were always, always problems. Like oh, a yeah, wild it, it, it was. Yeah. I mean, especially toward the end of, you know, prior to World War II starting out, like 1937 when the Japanese invaded China and Shanghai, there was an outright war going on. So Fairbairn seen all this. Oh, forgive no. me for asking. I mean, what, was Shanghai actually a British territory at the time? Part of it was. Part of it was. Yeah, yeah. And you had the uh, United States Marine Corps there for, I think, since 27. The Boxer Rebellion. Boxer yeah. Rebellion. Yeah. People yeah. don't even know that. Right. That's right. Marines in Beijing. Yeah. And yeah. the Chinese still remember. And they still, oh, yeah. they still yeah. got a case of the ass over there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You had everybody there. You had the Russians, the white Russians, the French, the British, the Americans. Everybody was jockeying for political power. The Italian, yeah. 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 So everybody was there. Again, it's open port. So so, you know, and Fairburn had a, being a Marine himself, uh, there's a, this, uh, the Saxon, uh, I, I could be wrong here, uh, Taxis, there's two brothers from the Marine Corps that were uh, closer to Anthony Drexel Biddle, who wrote Do or Die. So Fairburn loved those guys, and again, that stuff made its way into the United States Marine Corps. Everything that came out of Shanghai would be taught later on. Sounds like a bit of a Renaissance man, like Rudyard Kipling or one yeah, of those yeah, characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and then Sykes, um, he was, a, again, he served in World War One as a sniper, and he was really more of the gun guy, you know, uh, had probably more to do with the shooting than even Fairburn. Uh, Fairburn liked to uh, put his name on a lot of things, the Fair Sword, which was a smatch it, the FNS, the Fairburn Sykes. The Snatcher. Snatcher was his? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That was the Fairburns. He designed a lot of different things. When he, he taught, he also taught, not only did he teach in Britain, but he taught at Camp X for a while up in Canada. At, uh, Which was an OSS training facility. Yeah, and that was a special operations training group, I think 103. And then eventually he was seconded to the OSS, and that's where he basically stayed to the end of the war. And then he obviously taught Rex Applegate uh, at the Military Intelligence Training Center, MITC. Uh, people got to remember, F F Applegate didn't have that background like Fairburn and Sykes. You know, uh, while Donovan was like, hey, learn all you can about point shooting, hand-to-hand -hand combat, and then he was kind of thrown in with Fairburn. Uh, where Sykes kind of stayed in England until he passed away in uh, late 45. Uh, Fairburn taught Canada, Britain, and the United States. So Applegate didn't really have any history? Uh, or A little bit about shooting because of family members and people he okay. grew up with, which he talked about. But um, he simplified things even more. And I would say only because, be killed. Yeah, made it very simple for uh, the Military Intelligence Training Center and teaching covert operators. Um, also, like CIC, the Counterintelligence Corps during World War II, and they all basically learned like the same stuff. They had to give it to, give it to these guys very quickly and say, "Hey, go out there." They didn't have time to get on the ground and do ground fighting, which has become really big. They didn't have time for that. If you ended up on the ground, you were dead. 
that's basically how they looked at it. Even today, as a cop, I don't want to be on the ground and fighting somebody. Right, right. So it goes back to what we talked about in our last interview with Jim. Yeah. He was like, last place, I want to be is on the ground. Yeah, right. I remember talking with Jim. I think Jim said all his fights, I mean, hundreds of fights he's been in. Because I remember like one time, I was in a bar, he goes, and I backed up to the bar, and I had the guy in the choke, I'm like, I want to break his neck, you know? And everybody like, backed away from him. He goes, but Jim you know, didn't actually say that. Yeah, he was, you know, he didn't do that, you know, not Jim. He, he was, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you had to get shit to people quick. And that, yeah. was the, that was the whole premise, you know. Yeah. And then these guys, when these guys like uh, you know, you know, assassins or trained killers, you know, the instructors that they would have taught, they were highly trained. And they, most of the guys that sought out for the original twelve instructors, um, those guys all had some kind of background, whether it be judo, boxing, catch wrestling, so on and so forth. And it's not that one's better than the other; it depends on their experience. The other guy um, was uh, Derma Pat O'Neill which was another Shanghai police officer. He wound up going and teaching at the OSS for a short time, and then Fairburn basically gave his name to the first special service force of the Devils Brigade of the Black Devils, and that's where O'Neill went and taught his own system, because even O'Neill had a lot of training too. He was a six-degree black belt in Kodokan Judo. I mean, he was highly trained. These guys were trained with the top echelon at the Kodokan in Japan at the time, so there wasn't much that they didn't see. You know, they got to see a little bit of everything. Yeah, and this is all pre-World War II. And yeah. Judo, like, it, a lot of uh, a lot of the techniques in Judo and Jiu-Jitsu were, were outlawed, outright banned by, yeah. by Americans, by the Allies, uh, post-World War II. I mean, there, there are, there, and I, I imagine that somebody, somewhere, probably has a really nice library of mm. old books that contains techniques that are no longer taught. You can't find them in books anywhere. Yeah. And we're talking about neck breaks, you know, things oh, yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so... Okay, great. So, um, so back to you. Mm -hmm. All right. So you see Carly, you know, doing this thing, mm -hmm. which doesn't look like anything you've seen no, before. No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So yeah. Uh, so I trained him, you know, maybe a half a dozen times, and then maybe like six months went by, didn't see him, and then again my buddy had called me up six months later and was like, "Hey, let's go train." I thought he meant weight training because we were weight training obviously at the time too, and we show up at Carl's house now, you know, and uh, this is ninety three, ninety four. And uh, he's got the basement somewhat set up, and we just start training. And again, it was always a small group of call. This guy, this call knew that he had, you know, background with. He was never looking to make videos, even though later on he did. And but uh, you know, it was just a small group of guys. Most of the guys Carl taught were cops. Carl had been a former law enforcement officer himself, um, and had a traditional background in the Japanese and Okinawa martial arts. Had multiple black belts, uh, all the way up to I think six degree black belt. And, um, under legit guys too, not your fly by night, you know, five and dime dojos, real deal. You know, he trained on the Yoshisani Yamesca, uh, legit guy, passed away a couple years ago. Now he's like his main instructor, but he trained with a whole slew of guys, and there wasn't much caught in, sought out, you know, had one of the biggest book collections probably in the world. I think caught like 3,000 books, DVDs, videos, lived it, breathed it. The guy, and he could do it. That was a big thing. Carl could really do it. But getting back to it, it was really mindset and attitude that you got from it. So many people want to concentrate on the blows and strikes, and yeah, that's cool, and you develop that, but it's that attitude of doing it, you know? And when shit goes bad, you're in the street and in the gutter. I mean, I tell people, look at professional boxers, Mike Tice, anybody. Look at any professional UFC guy, and when they really get into it, out of the ring, what, what do you see? You see a brawl. You don't really see anything technical, because that's what happens in a real street fight, you know? Especially when someone's trying to kill you. You know, in the ring, no one's trying to kill you. You know who you're going to fight, you know, there's no weapons involved. You know, at three o'clock in the morning, I leave here. I don't know this area. You know, I'm not going to be sparring with somebody. You know, 
And the World War II combatants, real combatants, was never designed to spar people. I'm not going to sit there and throw at your hand blows and chin jabs in a sparring situation, you know? I'm going to punch you in the face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, how, so tell us a little bit about Carl, because we mentioned him. So, yeah. um, how, how, how did he, how did he get into, so he went from traditional martial arts, what drew him into the World War II style of combatives? Oh, it's a, okay, a funny story was, he was on a job at the time, and they had gotten a uh, call for a fight in a bar, when there was a biker bar, <laughs> and they were having a wedding in the biker bar, so of course, drinks were flowing, <laughs> multiple towns were called, Dirty so I think my brother went there, and like he said later on, he goes, everything I did on one particular guy, you know, he goes, it was just a slugfest, he goes, and then all my martial arts, I'm like, you know, I got done, my shirt was ripped, I had a bloody lip, and he goes, I'm talking to a sergeant that had been with the Naval Landing Forces during World War II, and had been a hand-to-hand combat instructor, he goes, well, you know, you're, you're taking a stance, you're fighting these guys, you know, the way we did things during World War II was a little bit different. You know, he goes, this guy was walking through the bar of cigarette, you know, being the nuts, you know, walked by, wham, edge of hand, blow across the windpipe, the guy's down. And he goes, you know, that's when I started to think, okay, there's, there's more to what I'm looking for. And then that's when he started to reach, you know, and then he trained with um, a guy who was really like, uh, what was his name? Oh, God, it blows my mind. Anyway, there's a guy in New York, uh, Charlie Nelson. And uh, Charlie Nelson, again, was a hand-to-hand combat instructor, uh, was wounded at Gu- uh, Guadalcanal. And him and his buddy, who I want to call his friends, they went to meet Charlie and put a handkerchief in his pocket and gave him a K-bar knife and pulled the sheath off. He's like, stab me. So Carl's like, this guy's old, you know? So he goes, I go to give him a little half-ass stab. He knocks it out of my, my hand and like spits in my face. He's like, motherfucker, when I tell you to stab me, stab me. So he's like, I come stabbing the guy. He sidesteps me, hits me, chops me, knocks me to the ground. Next thing I know, he's taking the handkerchief out. He goes, here, wipe that spit out of your eye. Right, that's what I'm gonna teach you about hand-to-hand combat. So he goes, after that, we were all the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to Carvana it doesn't get any better than this your favorite seat's the best spot in the house make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes there really is no place like home and speaking of home Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. A lot of NYPD, Charlie was a character, you know, so that was his initial training in like what I would consider World War II combatants was Charlie Nelson and anybody, a lot of guys trained with Charlie, but uh, he was actually an instructor too, he had an instructor certificate from uh, Charlie, not many guys did have that. Yeah. So that was like his real first exposure. And then at that time, also getting Killer Gate killed by Rex Applegate, contacting Rex. You know, there wasn't too many people calling in contact and trying to uh, correspond with it. Back then, especially, we didn't have the internet, so everything was through letters. And I seen the letters when he wrote Applegate back in the uh, 80s and stuff like that. So that was like his first like real, when he started to realize, okay, there's... Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Imagine for a moment that this ad was bought autonomously. Welcome to the new open web, where Viant is combining AI and human insight to create autonomous media buying that accelerates your return on ad spend and using Viant's DSP Adelphic, you can now measure your media offline and online 
to see the full impact of your media spend so you can spend more time on podcasts. Viant, built for the new open web. Built for now. Visit viantnow.com to learn more. There's something to this, you know, it's unconventional. Now he, Carl would go to uh, like the National Archives and find stuff. Yes, about yeah, him and Pat, in fact, they uh, look for anything that they could possibly find. Uh, we knew that the gunners, uh, Fairburn eventually called his system during World War II gunner fighting and it made sense to the American mind. Um, and there was videos that were put out, one on knife, one on hand to hand. Um, I think the other one might, might have been on shooting. And um, later on, somebody in Britain actually found them, and they're out there now. You can buy them. Really? And they're, yeah, yeah. They're really good to see because you can actually see Fairburn. And again, Fairburn's older. He's, he's like in his late fifties, early sixties, but you can still see the guy can move. The guy knew what he was talking about, you know. And um, even Applegate said one time when they were giving a demonstration uh, at Area B in Maryland, uh, Fairburn got close to him, was holding his neck. He goes, "Hey, how you like that? You go to me, right? Your fucking balls." You know, <laughs> you're like this sleeping to it in his ear, like psyching out, you know. And then he goes, yeah, come at me. And Applegate says, I went at like, what's this old guy doing? He goes, I went to go, ah. He goes, next thing I know, I'm flying into the crowd of like generals and, you know, colonels and stuff in the crowd. He goes, they weren't too happy about that. He goes, so I said, I better listen to this guy. You yeah. Know? And that's kind of how that all evolved. Yeah. You know? And then the shoot house in Area B. And, um, again, so, you know, so, yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about shooting. Uh, because, because World War II shooting and the shooting talk to, uh, to these operators is, is different than yeah. most of what's being talked to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of walk us through that. Yeah, uh, it, it's a big controversy. <laughs> We're point shooting, instinct shooting, combat shooting, call it whatever you want. Does it work? In my opinion, yes. There's a lot of validity to it. I've gotten into it with guys on the internet that were special operations guys from, and uh, maybe they don't understand it. You know, and the problem is like recently uh, a guy, uh, I won't mention any names, that's a guy I like, but uh, X-tier one guy, and he talks about point shooting, and then if someone's teaching it, they shouldn't be an instructor, and it has no validity, blah, blah, blah. Okay. You know, I would never do a hostage rescue or a situation and point shoot at 10 yards. Well, nobody ever said that. Point shooting yeah, from, <laughs> from zero, Fairman said from zero to four yards, that's 12 feet. And he wasn't just talking about a hit shooting. If you read the book, and there's a lot of other material out there, the instinct part was whether to have the gun at uh, retention, which is full talk in every, every field of endeavor, yeah. you know, half hit, three quarter hit, and point shoulder. But depending on the distance you were, that was the instinct where guys were going to pull their guns and how they were going to use it. And he found that out in Shanghai. You know, when the average dwelling was, you know, a sheet of plywood, you know, 32 square feet. You know, you'd walk into one room and it was, you know, and in another room, so you wouldn't have the gun out. The gun was held at close quarters, and that's what Fairburn seen from his experience. And you gotta remember, they didn't go through the training like we got today, where guys are shooting 3,000 rounds or 10,000 rounds of handgun. They might only give him 12 rounds or 18 rounds of ammo. Well, and they had to be I don't know what you went through, Dave, but I mean, that's very similar to the training I received as far as pistol marksmanship, is that as soon as you clear the holster, you're breaking the wrist, you're coming up, because if the guy is on top of you, you wanna be able to Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even, I mean, I don't know if it's taught now, the Naval Tier 1 unit, I won't mention any names, but they were teaching the system the same thing when they, were, when, they, when they were entering, you know, I don't know if it's still taught now, but there's a lot of validity to that. I kind of like adopted that to what I would teach, and, um, but you got to train it like anything else, you know? When you say point shooting, you're not saying, like, instinctual shooting instead of using the sights on the gun. You know, here's... That's, the, not, the, that's not the point. Yeah, you know, right? If, if obviously, if it's here, I can't get a second right. shot, yeah. but it could be an aim shot because I'm using my body, I'm using certain instincts. If I sit the jack and I point at him, 
I'm going to be relatively on target at this distance. You know, I wouldn't do that more than like probably two yards. And then, you know, we used the flashlight picture. It's terminology that was used. The terminology they used back then is different than today. But really what they are talking about is pretty much the same thing. That's where there's that gap and people really don't understand it. It's interesting though because I mean, just how, how Marxism has developed over the years. I mean, if you go back and read some historical documents from like Civil War era and stuff, um, some of the best, you know, some of their crack shots or the, the, the pistol, you know, their, their pistol arrows, I guess, um, they would shoot, their trigger finger was actually their middle finger um, because they would use their, uh, they would use their index finger as their, the guy, as the yeah. guy. Really? And that, and that was, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so, and the other thing is, is, you know, if we look at trick shooters and I don't know how they do it, you know, and that's a lot of hours spent oh. in repetition, but a lot of those, a lot of those shooters are not, they're not getting a, a, a a front side, they're yeah. they're hip shooting at moving targets. Yeah. So, you know, they're they're. I think I think what's important is it. Yes, you're you're not going to go into a hostage situation. You're not going to you know you're. you're the you're, point is not to ignore the sights on the weapon. Correct. Yeah. Right. Right. Someone once told me if you could use them, you use them. Right. Okay. Right. right. <laughs> right. No, we're not talking about. If you talk specifically hostage rescue, flashbang, thunder chip, go through the door, and I got to put rounds on target because there's other people there, and I want right. to on guys. Well, yeah, and I can almost still guarantee, guys, you correct me if I'm wrong, you guys got the background, but you're truly probably not seeing your front sight and your rear sight. It's there, but I guarantee you when someone's trying to kill you, you're going to be concentrating on the threat and probably not on the sights. I could be wrong about that, you know, but it makes, well, anybody I've spoken, Mike, Mike's perfect example, Mike say in Vietnam, now again, we're talking about jungle warfare, Mike's like, I very rarely have ever had the gun on my shoulder. Yeah. Like I was always kept down here and using my thumb, nose over the barrel, and I was shooting the gun like this. Yeah. Like doing like, okay, a point fire, instinct fire, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's obviously changed a bit because yeah. when you get into a close quarter, uh, you know, you, the shooting, you know, it becomes more precise when you're in a house, Absolutely. you know, like... And as far as like seeing your sights, I mean, I, you, I, I, nobody know. I mean, maybe they do. Maybe they can slow down time enough when they're in combat. You train so much to get those sights up that whether you see them, like or not, yeah, yeah, they're there. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I got that training, my, you know, myself. Yeah. So I would, yeah. Probably is a lot of guys. Let's say guys at train McCall. There was another gentleman on train McCall who was big with it, but it was like. Oh, it's or whatever the OSS did or whatever the uh, CIA. Uh, that, that's all. That's all. You, you can't use your sights, and you, you can't be close-minded. Right. You know, right. I have all. You know, I've done that shoot, hostage rescue training, and I shoot with my sights just like everybody else. I'm a halfway decent shot. I used to be better, but not anymore. Well, and you know, people <laughs> develop you know new you know different tanks. Like now they have the uh, what is it, center axis uh, relock yeah. position for close quarter, um, which some people love and some people don't, and it's like. It, it, at the end of the day, like training what work, like the the, the the fraction of offset between any of those techniques, it, it's going to come down to like how well you do it. Yeah. Not you know not how well you know it, it's like it, it's like when you're a sniper, you can get an Olympic grade gun, but you're not going to be shooting right. at Olympic grade levels because you're not you're not you know you're not capable of it. Well, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. Like, when I was uh, 18 Bravo, and I would see guys on my team shooting a certain way, and even if it doesn't, they're not standing the way they're supposed to be in the textbook, if they're still hitting the target, right, and they got nice, good shot groups, 
I'm literally not going to fuck with them because whatever they're doing is working for them. Right. So they're like, why am I going to make them move around and adjust just so that they look like something in a manual? Right. You know? Right. Um, or the, or what Jim would say, what I was saying about when he would train me and he in. I wouldn't be able to get it. I wouldn't be doing it right. right. And be like, okay, just do this instead. Yeah. Right. Like he knew enough. He had enough knowledge. Yeah. He had enough right. knowledge to tailor it to the person. I oh, guess, absolutely. And that's important. It can't be like a certain, you know, I kind of got, was starting to fall into that years ago. But when, you know, experience, age, you start to, you know, open up a little bit more to what maybe you used to do. Right. But, uh, you know, everybody does things differently. You know, just understand that the point shooting and the instinct shooting was never designed for you know, it's for close quarters combat, very close. You know, I would say honestly zero to four yards. I mean, not even four, two yards, you know. And, and we're also talking, we're also talking about the time when you would have to shoot at night, but you didn't have night vision, you didn't yeah. have IR lasers, you didn't have, you know, anything like that. So, so a lot of time, so you can't have the gun right in front of your face yeah, you because the, you'll go blind. Um, and they, they would use the muzzle flash, right? Yes. They would yes. use the muzzle flash for the first shot. Yeah. To light up the illuminate, you get that flash. You got like a, like a, almost like a second when you shoot. And I've done this, um, doing some, matter of fact, here in, in Queens, I did it at, at a place and we were demoing for some people. And I pitch black, I knew what a target was. They would just hit the flashlight or a light on and off real quick so you knew what the initial target is. Then you would point shoot. And with that flash, you'd use that flash to be able to engage other targets off of that flash without using a flashlight. It's wild stuff. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there people just are not familiar with, or they read about it. Like, fair people not shooting to live. Fairburn's book on point shooting or combat shooting. And, you know, if you look at it, he talks about the 1911 there. That's the gun they were carrying that was sold to the Shanghai Police by Sites. He worked for Colt at the time. But if you look at the two-handed shoot, the thumbs are well on the slide, right? That's new today, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, 1942, it was in Shooting to Live. And other books. And there's other guys besides Fairburn and Sykes that also predate Shooting to Live. Uh, they didn't go as far as talking about using two guns. You know, I mean, it sounds a little wild, and I'm not saying to do that, but depending how good that person is, you could do all kinds of stuff. It's, it's really up to the individual. It, I mean, I'm not even told, like up to speed on like what's the latest and greatest being taught at Safawake or Safaric or OTC or any of that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Uh, but I think it's really interesting how what's old is new again and like mm -hmm. these tactics and the different techniques get repeated over and over and you see all these guys running around like oh do you know the cool new thing and like really it's something that like the SAS was doing back in the 80s yeah, or, yeah. or some other unit was doing years yeah. and years and ago. SAS taught right you know CAG and uh, they originally got photos of it originally you know where they teaching the hip shooting with the sound guns uh, and stuff a guy named Ginger Flynn Mm -hmm. They brought down a brag, and he, yeah. he, he trained them in pistol marksmanship. And so he was SAS. Uh, yeah, he was SAS operator, and they, they uh, taught them some CQB techniques yeah. also. Yeah. There's a really interesting history behind all that. I think there's a, a, a time and place for everything. You right. Know, to say, oh, that's completely wrong, or you, you, if someone's teaching that, uh, you know, I, I, I disagree. You know, well, especially I, from police officers. Look, those were hard lessons that everybody learned, you know, during OEF and OIF is... You know, in the late 90s, you know, CQB was the sexy new toy and, you know, the latest and the greatest. And so everybody trained in that. Everybody wanted to get good at that. And then, um, and then you go into a situation where you're fighting people who adapt, who, who learn lessons. And all of a sudden now they're setting up houses as 
as base as kill boxes for if, if yeah. you go in CQB. So then all of a sudden, what works? Oh, well, let's go back to World War II style urban fighting. Level the house. The, level the house. Yeah. You know, do call outs. You know, uh, clear as much as you can of the house from the outside as opposed to. That was when we, we got too addicted to doing these like SWAT team raids. And, right. Like, stacking up on the door, right. running in and sending. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you know what? There's no hostage in here. Yeah. Like, they're, 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 why are we running into a house in which we have no idea what's going on when there's. When there's no hostage in sight, and CQB was was more or less developed. Yeah. That, that came out because of um, a Delta deployment in like 2003, I think it was, and one squadron, like a third of the yep. unit, was casualties. Yeah, they, yeah. that was when they realized, like, whoa, we're not going to survive very long if we're doing these sorts of uh, raids, precision or surgical raids yeah. on, on houses unnecessarily. You know? And then, and then the idea, like the stealth approach to the door, you know, rapid sudden action in. All of a sudden, it's like, well, let's pie off all the windows. Let's pie off the door. Let's clear as much of this place as we can before we ever go in. If we're going in, like, why are we going in? Yeah. Like, we know, you know, it, it's one thing if, you know, if you've got ambiguous intelligence, you know, this guy might be here. We don't know. We don't know whose house this is. You can't, you know, you can't just stand back and level the place. Um, and sometimes you have to go in. But there's nothing wrong with setting up on the walls, doing a call out, and you know. So, so it, it just goes to show that, like, and there may come a time where, for whatever reason, under whatever circumstances it is, we go back to CQB, or maybe the next one we we go back to, you know, just the old Vietnam style, you know, um, patrolling in the woods. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, you also have to think like some of these things that we take for granted today, like drawing a pistol from a holster, executing a combat reload. Like, Jeff Cooper was the only one teaching that for the longest time in the United States. I don't know when the Army started doing that. It was until the 80s. I, I don't know. I, I would say that, too. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And the Brits were actually further ahead. I mean, I think I mentioned yeah. this before. The Brits were further ahead of us because they were working in, like, a clandestine environment. Right. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they had the training. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was their training ground. It was a proving ground, I yeah. would say. Oh, yeah. You know. I mean, and, and it was a harsh, you know. Learn real quick. Yeah. Um... Okay, so uh, I don't know even more know where we left back, off. Back to Carl. Yeah, uh, Carl. Yeah, training with Carl. So yeah, uh, ninety two, and then I went uh, back to uh, training with him in ninety four, and then until the time he passed in two thousand seventeen, and then while I was with him, we would go interview different guys. Peter Logano was one guy we went. The guy who invented the Vietnam Tomahawk. Right. Oh, yeah, Lacan, yeah, Lacan, yeah. Lacan, 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 yeah. We're trying to impress you. Yeah. We're like, this is what we did, bro. This is what we had, and we made it work. Yeah. You know? It wasn't like it wasn't like they were trying to market a brand. Yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. right. yeah. Yeah. Like, Here's yeah. the axe, and like, so after like you know, <laughs> about twelve beers later, he's like, hey, Pete, let me ask you something. Um, what was the actual system that you used with the tomahawk? <laughs> Who? What do you mean? Because when the guy sticks out, you chop it off. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He goes, you know, in the head, the chest cavity, you got to put your foot on there, and you're like, yeah. And Carl's like, oh, thanks, you know, you know? I mean, really, and that's what it was with them, you know? Even the yeah. hand was the same, you know, he had been part of Native American Indian. Um, and he could take anything and throw it. That's what he kind of, like, was known for. And he, he wrote two little manuals, which I was nicely signed and gave to me, Carl, and it's somewhere in my collection. But again, uh, there was another guy, John Richter, a lieutenant colonel with the Marine Corps, who served Vietnam, uh, World War II, Korea. He was another one, uh, trained with uh, 
John Styers, who had been a protege of uh, Anthony Drexel Biddle, who wrote Do or Die. Um, the other guy wrote uh, Cold Steel. Yeah. Um, excellent, another excellent book. So for all the years of like meeting these guys, Applegate, we got to interview a lot of these guys and talk to them. And, and Applegate was really impressed with Carl, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah she wrote that in a, in a letter I told him. Like, who did you actually train with? Like, you know, yeah. thinking he was like, you know, an operative. And then Carl was like, no, you know, Carl was very good at what he did. Yeah. Because he had a really good base from the traditional martial arts, and then he took that into the combatives. Right. So he was, you know, when he did something, he did it all out. Yeah. He was very, very gifted. Yeah. But he also, like I said, there wasn't a time I would pick up the phone and call him where, hey, bro, let me call you back, I'm training. He was in the basement, he was training. Oh, yeah. You know, he I mean, I mean, he, yeah. Took, you know, he took conditioning to a whole yeah. new level. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, almost too far sometimes, but that was him. You know, he wasn't telling anybody else to do it, but for him, it made sense. Yeah. You know, and, um, so yeah, I mean, like I said, I spent 14 years with him, and then um, I got my first black belt in jujitsu. Uh, which the funny thing of how that came about was we had a guy coming over from Japan who was uh, teaching over there, um, was well respected, was on the I believe the Olympic committee, and Carl um, said, "Oh, we got to put a seminar together for this guy." So we have a, a UNESCO's dojo, his judo instructor's dojo. So we did, we set it up, and I'm like, "Well, what are we wearing?" Because at that point, we just wear whatever regular clothes when we train. And uh, he was like, how long have you been training with me now? I'm like, five years. I'm like, well, we're, we're like, no, I'm like, you're a black belt. I mean, it was like, no, you know, yeah. you're a black belt. You've been with me long enough and what we do, you know, and really the World War II combatives was like old school Japanese jiu-jitsu. That's really what it is. It's uh, hardcore, you know, blows, you weren't street, you weren't like fighting on the ground and all that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You got to learn it. But it was real simple, hardcore, do or die type shit, you know. Yeah. So I was 97, I got my black belt and then, uh, we were doing more interviews, training with other, you know, and we trained with a lot of different people. Sayak. Yeah, Sayak 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 Sayak. Yep. We were here in Queens. We trained with them back in like 98. Um, uh, Scott Sonnen. I mean, there are a lot of different guys. The Russian systems you guys were talking about the last time. The Sistema and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Fill us in on Sistema because we don't know. <laughs> oh, should we not? No, it's not even some of this nonsense. You know, the Russians, they, they're Sambo guys. Yeah. The real guys know Sambo. Right. Combat right. Sambo is no joke. Right. Um, the stuff where you see, you know, you come at me like I go like this and you fall on the flip. No, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know. Oh, that. Yeah, that, that's the stuff I'm talking about. Okay. There might be. Here's the other problem. A guy might be legit, and then you have that name, yeah. and then right away it's like you, you know, just like crowd mine. Right? Yeah. The original Israeli systems. The guy who's one of the founders of that trained under Applegate at Airbnb. He's like, I remember reading about him. He's like a seventy-year-old Israeli dude. Yeah, like teaching people how to beat with a cane. Yeah, there's a couple guys now. My buddy Ralph, that lives over here in Queens, he's more of a historian than I am, and he has all the original Israeli books. And if you look at it, it's Defendu, it's everything that came out of that general area from like 1930 to like 1960. You got a self-defense book? It was good shit. Yeah, the, the, I think the problem with uh, not the problem, but what happens to these systems is uh, there, there's no money in it. If, if you can't have classes, give people belts, mm -hmm. um, brand, it, brand it, give people belts, like, you, you know, keep them there for a certain amount of time, you know, a few charge years, them charge them, right. you know, their monthly membership fee. So, so if you take something like maybe the original Krav Maga, which you could probably teach somebody, not that they would... Not that they would necessarily master, but you could probably teach it to them in the span of a week. Or yeah, that, that was the whole point. Yeah, teach these guys very quickly to get to right. give them something to survive. Right. But, yeah. but if That's you it. if you go and you learn Krav Maga and you're like, 
well, I really like to teach for a living, but I can't make a living teaching this. So, you know, uh, well, it's, I don't know, you know. It gets commercialized. Yeah, it gets commercialized. And, it, and then we add all these fillers in because, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it's it's like a book. It's like a nonfiction book. Uh, if, Nolan says the guy's name, Amy Lichenfield. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, yeah. It's like a nonfiction book. If you, were to, if you were to boil a nonfiction book down to just the facts, just, just the bullet yeah. points, it's like a pamphlet. So, so they have to add a ton of filler in it, you know, uh, in order to have a, a sellable product. And that's what happens with oh, course, all yeah. these other systems is they, they if they want to make a living, and you know, you can't fault somebody for that. But then, but then, but even though they learn the original system and that is stuff, their students don't really know what the original system was. They, you know, they don't know what the actual important techniques are. So. You know, yeah, it just keeps on getting the, the whole traditional yeah. system of ranks and stuff. I mean, look at judo. The guy who founded judo, Jigoro Kano. Originally, when they went from the old Menkyo system, the old license system, they go and they get Menkyo Kaiden, and they went to the belt system. The original belt system was white, brown, black. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, you have green, blue, yellow, orange. Right. That became right. okay. Now I'm gonna make it yellow belt. Look, son. Congratulations, your mom's check cleared. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what happened with the martial arts, and that's yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. Because you know what? You know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a shame because that's what ones have happened. And the average person, the average mother, the average guy who's on Wall Street, you know, he comes in the dojo, and let's say we're just working on grabs. The guy grabbed it. Wait a minute, I hit him with an edge of hand across his bicep. And I, you know, God, people don't want to get hit. Right, right. And that's, that's the other <laughs> thing. That's something that Jim kind of pointed he, he, out. He told me many times. He was like, you can't run a dojo where your students are leaving bloodied every day. Yeah, yeah. They won't come you, What's going to happen is you're going to have, and I've been in these types of... You said uh, Dale was one of the exceptions. Like, I could knock the guy out and he'd come back. Yeah. And he'd, he'd think it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I've been in those types of, of schools and whatnot where... All, all you have really, and you can't even call it a school, it's a training group. Yeah. You have a core group of guys who, it, it's sort of like the Dog Brothers, whoever. You have a core group of people who enjoy kicking the shit out of each other and getting the shit kicked and out learning of them and learning from it. Um, but you can't sell that. You know, you, you, you <laughs> have to find these sadomasochists who want to. Like you know, like minded people. Yeah, like minded people who just want to go hard all the time. And, you know, but, but most of those guys don't have any money. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of those things, like, somebody once told me that the best rock climbers in the world are all dead. Like, because they're pushing the limits <laughs> oh, so much. Yeah, the free climbing, exactly. Off, they fall off a cliff yeah. and die. Yeah. It's like, you know, he did what? He fell. Oh, I'm the best now. <laughs> <laughs> You're the sensei. <laughs> but, yeah. Look at me. sensei. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I mean, like I said, 14 years I trained with him, and you know, when, when he passed, I was fortunate enough uh, through a buddy of his to get uh, what we refer to as the dungeon. It was uh, again the church where I first started training with Carl. I trained for the last, but uh, Carl passed away in 2007, and three months later I got that space. I built it up, and I've been teaching out of there and doing seminars out of the where. It's like, that's no bullshit. I've been down yeah, there. That's cool, man. I, I, I want to go back just talking about it now. I get all excited. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. It was fun. It was yeah. a good, you got down there and it brought you right into that whole, you know, ambiance of, oh, wow, if this is it, you know. You Are you still teaching there. classes down there? I haven't in a while. I still technically have the spot. You know, I still got the key. There's some stuff down there. Mm -hmm. uh, I took some of the stuff out of there to bring home to use. Um, 
but I can still go down there if I have to use it and teach. How, like, I know you had, you know, I don't know if you want to get into this, some health issues. How does that affect your training? Do you have to kind of pull back a bit when you're training? Other yeah, people? I mean, uh, I'd like to pull back. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the only thing I would do if I was training with somebody, I just wouldn't allow someone to crank on a choker or yeah, strike yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Outside of that. You know, yeah. one doctor tells you one thing, yeah. you know, and then another doctor tells you, no, don't yeah. do that. So it's like, you know, use a little common sense, know where, my, you know where I'm at and stuff like that. So, you know, I look back at some of the stuff I did, training with call, you know, taking edge of hand blows across the side of the neck. Yeah. I mean, I've been choked out unconscious numerous times. Yeah. You know, I've been punching, you know, when I first started training him, that was one of the biggest things. Being a young man, had a bit of a couple scruffs and stuff like that. But Leon, you know, he's like, what are you really worried about? He goes, so, you know, like a little flinchy. I'm like, oh, no, just getting hit. He goes, all right, let's go downstairs, you know. Put some boxing gloves on him, okay? You're like, ready? Yeah. Boom! Punch you right in the face. And I'm like, boom! Get back up. I'm like, you ready? Boom! Yeah. I didn't know how to take a break fall when I started doing a lot of the judo and jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Tomanagi, fall on the ground, and his uh, foot in my stomach, I go fucking flying. I'm landing on concrete. I'm like, yeah. what about a mat? Knocked the wind out of me, I got back up, he did it a couple times, you over that? Yeah. But you know what, for someone like me, that's what I needed. I needed right. to hard, fast, and let's get it over with. And I, you know, it's funny because I think that, like, most people, uh, you, you know, most, most people in today's society don't get in fights. And, you know, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing, it's like they don't get in fights. We, in, in our culture today, most people have just never been in a physical confrontation. And, and, and that's, that's a testament, honestly, to kind of how great we have it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That nobody, it, like, we're not warring with our neighboring, uh, with, with two streets over, you know, for the resources down at the well. Um, but, uh, but I think that, that most people who are afraid of getting in a fight are, are afraid because they've never been hit. And, and if they just get hit, like, really, even if they get knocked out, you survive. You survive. Yeah. You, get, you, get, you know what? That... That's not as bad as I thought. That's it. It's anticipation, like anything else. Yeah. Like the first time, hey, you train, you train, you train, even if in a tier one unit, and all of a sudden, man, you get deployed, you come out of that little bird, you yeah. stack up, and you all of a sudden, hey, this is the real fucking thing. Yeah. Bullets might be coming back yeah. at me. And then once you get past that, okay. Yeah. You know, you get a little more confidence. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know, but, you know, I'm using that as an example, but, uh, you know, just, yeah. Sometimes you just have to be punched in the face. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's good training. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could share with us like maybe some specific techniques or things that Carl taught you or things that you've developed yourself that you're just not going to see learning Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, going down to the karate clubs, some, some unique things that you're probably not going to find elsewhere. I would think like a lot of the combatives, defender, gutter fighting, whatever you want to call it, a lot of stuff is static. You know, uh, originally you know, the Japanese, when you look at the Japanese Jiu-Jitsu and Samurai, there's a lot of grabs on the wrist, a lot of binding techniques, so you stop a samurai from drawing a weapon. So there's a lot of the wrist oh, techniques and stuff like that. So a lot of that, you know, transcended over. Um, basically, like he had like they keep stuff, you know, keep it simple, stupid. If a guy if a guy grabs you, like we we won't worry about this because what's that going to do to me? Nothing. He's in the head bump me, knee me in the balls, punch me in the face. So I don't want to stop that. So we don't worry about this. So we would do what was called like a shoulder stop. And basically just throwing a palm, you know, right, right your shoulder to stop anything on that side of the body. And again, I have to teach something quick. I, I would just draw back and tiger claw right to the face and try to go for his eyes, nose, and throat. Then if I wanted to get this off, I could hit here, hit to the side of the neck, knock him out. If I want to grab him with a wrist throw and throw him a kodagaish or a Japanese move, get him a walking katami. Then you could do all that other stuff. A lot of it, again, for law enforcement, it really applies. 
you know, um, chokes and stringer holds, I think law enforcement, you know, my personal opinion, is they should be doing it and learning it because look at what's going on now with law enforcement. I mean, I can get into that. It's like, but, you know, I mean, chokes and stringer holds, at the end of the day, I mean, it was, you know, some of the things that happened have been tragic. At the end of the day, chokes and stringer holds, when, when applied correctly, are some of the most humane ways yeah. of it's, it's, ending yes, the hold rather than going to your gun. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it's one of the most humane ways. And that, I mean, I may have been interviewed by people before <laughs> who questioned me on why I, you know, choked an individual out, and I and I told them I was like it was it was actually safest. It was the, it was <laughs> yeah. the most it was that it was the safest way to handle the situation. I mean, would you rather I had, like gotten on top of him and just beat his face in like yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, with this, it was like no muscle fuss. He's you know yeah. done. Um, so. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's unfortunate that I don't know. I think that you know when when civilians hear the hear choke or whatever, yeah, yeah. you know they're thinking, ah, you know, <laughs> but, that, but that's not a properly applied right, choke. Right, right. Do that, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, that's a problem. The average person doesn't know what they're looking at. They they're not experts in it, you know. And there's one thing I'm highly trained in is chokes and strangleholds, yeah, and neck breaks and dislocations, you know, yeah. and. Uh, I mean, it was kind of something I specialized with, people would call, you know, to learn all that stuff. And um, it's safe, but you got, again, if law enforcement administration truly cared about their police officers, they would have these guys training at the minimum once a week. Yeah. Send them to a dojo, have somebody teach, have a school right at the, at, you know, there. If they're so afraid of everybody getting hurt and getting sued and being out of work. Right. Let's face it, as a police officer, 99% of the time, I'm going to go hands on with somebody. I'm going to use my gun maybe 1% of the time. Very few cops are ever going to draw their firearm and use it. You know, um, I think firearms training has come a long way, especially in law enforcement, which is good. You know, I mean, I know what I taught. You know, I taught a little bit of everything, and um, but the hand in hand, and the, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I backed up another police officer. I can think of so many different situations. Uh, one particular situation, two cops that I work with, both were about six, three, two eighty, three hundred pounds, big guys. One was a martial art guy, fourth year black belt. And a couple different arts. The other guy was just a regular, just big guy. And he had some street scale up against a car that was in a lot begging for money on our property, you know. So I'm sitting in the police car watching this and I'm like, yo, what are you guys doing? <laughs> They're like, yo, man, he's like, I'm not resisting. They yell at him, you know, stop resisting, which we're taught, you know, stop resisting. So I get out of the car, I walk up to him, and I'm like, you know, he's pinned up against the car, but they can't get his arms behind that. And I'm like, hey, bro, it's a no-win situation for you. I'm yeah. like, the three of us, you know, one way or the other, you get cuffed, you know? And he was like, I'm not. So I kind of like pushed the one guy aside, grab him, take my cuffs out, grab his other arm, and I'm like, I don't want to embarrass him and say anything derogatory toward the guys I work with. But later on, I got both of them on the side. I'm like, yeah, what were you doing? I'm like, he didn't resist me. He's like, oh, he must have stopped. I'm like, no, you know what it was? You know, I go, the arm bends this way. It doesn't bend the way you guys are trying to do it. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. what it comes down to. The guys under that stressful situation, yeah. because they don't train, right. they don't have a background in it, they do stuff that sometimes escalates it. Yeah. And I've worked with plenty of people, too, where I had a particular sergeant at one place I worked, where I could come there, and I don't mind talking to people. If yeah. I have to go hands-on with somebody, yeah. beautiful thing. You would think, because people who know me, they would think, oh, yeah, what did you do? And I'm like, I try to talk people out of it. Yeah. You know, because then I got to write a damn report or take the guy to the hospital. I don't want to do that shit, you know? Yeah. I don't want to be stuck there with this idiot. So 
there have been plenty of situations where I'd have it under control, and then a supervisor comes along, I have one in particular, and he would get the guy all amped up, and then here we are fighting this guy. Yeah. And you know, he did that like once, twice, and the third time, I'm like, hey, you know, you do that again, you're taking the report, and you're gonna deal with it. But I'm like, just go over there and stay away, because some people just don't know how to talk to people. Right. You know, have I went ballistic on people that I mean, yeah, of course. We all do. We all make mistakes right. we're human. Right. But there's just certain ways to handle things and there's ways not. And I see it all I watch all the videos that are out there on Instagram and YouTube and people bash on law enforcement. So, yeah, sure. Some cops make a mistake, but there's I watch certain situations and I'm like, God, if that guy trained for cops, a see, week, that'd be fine. That's that's what I know the guys I mean I've had special operations guys complain to me a lot about because they go into training law enforcement afterwards mm -hmm. not about this specifically actually about uh, medical training mm -hmm. and like the ass pain they went through just trying to get cops to carry tourniquets no, yeah, yeah, yeah. now it's a big thing you know, yeah that, but well, you know and it's it's unfortunate because i think what most like what most civilians don't understand are cops are and it's not their fault. They're woefully undertrained yeah, for yeah. what for what they're faced with, and what we ask them to do. What we ask them, yeah. what we ask them to do, and like honestly, cuffing a person who's resisting is is is, is hard. I mean, I, I, we used to run exercises where like I'd let you know like three guys you know injured or whatever try to cuff me, and and I wouldn't like fight back. But I would just be squirrely. Yeah, yeah. I would just be squirrely, yeah. and and they would they they just they couldn't yeah. do it. People looking you know? for the magic trick, but they yeah. had some guy on PCP or just a big guy. Yeah, there's some guys that just and they just mock up and you yeah. can't even me with yeah. all my trick. You just can't do anything. Yeah, you have to hurt that guy. And, and, and that's the thing is it is it like when you know we get target fixation and, yeah. and, and and if we only know how to do one thing or if you know it's like it's like those guys trying to take his arms back. They were probably so amped that it was, that they they didn't even realize you know yeah. whatever they did they didn't and and they didn't have like any kind of flow drill to go okay we go here and if that doesn't work we go here and if that doesn't work we go here because uh, you can't just learn um, you can't just learn okay do this no. or you can do this or you can do this you have to work a flow drill so that. If you know you're grabbing a certain way, and I start to turn, you're ready for that. Yeah, when it's you're already ready. Yeah, I tell you a perfect example. We had a guy that assaulted an officer during the game. I wasn't there, so there was already warrants out for him. That's why they were going to confront him. We went up getting away. I was working a side Spoiler job. Alert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, not me. You go, hey, now you got to wear those guys. But yeah. then I seen him. I'm like, yo, that's what's his name, right? He still got warrants. He goes, yeah, because now they got. We signed a warrant against him, you know, yeah. for assault. So anyway, long story short, we confront him, we, we get him cornered and, uh, right before he gets on this elevator and put his hands on the wall. I let my partner, who's the detective, who signed the, the complaint against him, he's dealing with him. I'm just kind of like standing back. And I got him by the wrist and probably by like his bicep, just yeah. holding his arm on the wall, not doing anything to him. Well, he gets him a little bit amped up. This kid was, uh, I won't mention the gang, but he was in a gang. He pulls off, and I get him in, in Waki Katami to judo hold. Then I get him in Aikido Sanku. I got him like 20 different moves in like two seconds, and then his arm behind his back. Then I had him out of hair, and he's yelling and screaming, you're breaking my arm. I'm like, in two seconds, I'm breaking three spots. Yeah. You know, I'm like, cuff him. But I did it so quick with yeah. no thought process, like you said, the flow drill. And I hadn't practiced those techniques in all honesty at yeah. that point, probably like eight years. Yeah. But I had done it so much. And then I remember talking to Carl the next day, because I run shit past him, and like, hey, what do you think? You know? He goes, yeah, beautiful, great. He goes, no, it worked. That's all that matters. Yeah. You know, like Jim says, what works, works. Right. You know? And 
but you got to have the training to do it. You can't do like a two-day class and then expect that kind of stress. Right. That's not going to happen. Right. You know? So, uh, I, Jack kind of asked this earlier, and you went yeah. a little bit into it, but, but just you know, you can share like, what are some of the what are some of the strikes that that you might see, for instance, uh, in World War II style uh, in gutter fighting or whatever else that that you might not see in other styles, or that might be buried in other styles out of one of eight strikes. You yeah, because uh, <laughs> I know like like. Um, Hard strikes, yes. you know, the cross strike yeah. with, with a knife that's armed, things like that. Um, the shoulder stop, um, you get a lot of brachial stuff. stuff. Um, uh, it's all in the traditional martial arts. Right. I would say it's how it's delivered and how it's taught. Right. So instead of going through a traditional type kata, which is not wrong with people that understand, there's very few and far between real, what I would consider real martial art guys that you could go train with. That you're really going to learn the real martial art, the right. real karate, the real Japanese kempo and stuff. But the, as far as the strikes in which we you've trained with us, you know the edge of hand blow, that was like the secret blow of Japanese judo jiu-jitsu. You know that blow. I mean, you know, you want to punch that that hard? No. But I can guarantee it. I can break your wrist. Yeah. I can. Now definitely knock. You, I know for a fact. I knock you out. Right. A killing blow would be right across the windpipe. Yeah. You know, across the windpipe, unless you train the guy. I uh, I took my screen out of the shot so you guys can <laughs> oh, demonstrate okay. if you want to. <laughs> yeah. I'm, if, I'm you wanna, the three -way like, if you want to, if you want to, like just show. Because I don't know if you guys, if you've never experienced a brachial stun, you can do this to yourself. Just right <laughs> across the side of your neck. It hurts like fuck. It's like yeah. here. And do you know the do you know the physiology? Do you know the mechanism behind it that causes that? Karate. Uh, well, what you do when you hit with the edge of hand blow to the side of the neck, generally you're stimulating what's called the carotid sinus reflex, which is a drastic drop in blood pressure and heart rate, and ultimately it's a safety mechanism. Which even when you knock somebody out, when you do a uh, carotid artery choke, let's say, you know, just like so, it's very simple. It's and it's fairly safe unless the guy had like an issue that you didn't know about. Right. But even then, I can't even fathom that I would kill somebody with. And you got to know again through training how much power to apply, you know. But it's such an uncom. The problem, the great thing I think about World War II combat is it's unconventional. Yeah. So I'm standing there, I'm playing like we're talking side yeah. way. If I'm standing here like this, someone throws a punch. One of the easiest methods to deal with somebody that throws a punch is just raise your elbow. Let somebody put their elbow, make a fist, and then punch down their elbow, and they're going to break their hand. At the very least, if it doesn't break, they're not going to do that again. So it's very simple. A lot of guys teach this for shooting. That's fine too. But you want to protect your general area, you know, yeah. your face and your neck and your throat in the back of your neck. I mean, and they use that for the spear technique, too. The spear technique, you know, yeah. If, but having that up here, yeah. it fits right in with, you know, having a firearm back here or the handgun. But um, it's your hand blows to the side of the neck. Again, obviously, if you go to the front, the front, there's a good chance you crush the windpipe. You know, it doesn't take much. Um, the guy's probably dead. If he was over, you know, edge back over to the base of the neck, again, knockout, or you could dislocate the cervical vertebrae yeah. at the dense bone. Um, but again, just against the form, any you can do it anywhere. It looks, people who never trained it, they'll make your comments, but until you train and someone's actually grabbing you, and just when guys were, like when you came over, yeah. and we put pads on, and just come with an edge of hand blow. I mean, you feel it. Oh yeah, after, <laughs> your, hands, your arms are dead. After, after like, <laughs> everybody, after, after like the whole day, everybody's just kind of sitting there like trying to eat. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a funny story. One of the first times, the first time I taught after Carl passed away and I got the school opened up in Paramus, I had uh, two guys come down. One was uh, Frank and Rob. And uh, Frank just retired from NYPD to 25 years. My buddy Rob is in security and now he's in law enforcement. And I didn't know this. So they came down and I just had those two. They were my first two guys by myself. So we do a whole, I run them through a drill and I train them just like Paul would train me. And I, 
they're, they're going to feel the technique. If you yeah. go loose with people, they're going to leave there and say, oh, yeah, shit, yeah, don't yeah, worry. Yeah, you yeah. got to hit people. Yeah. So what I didn't know, we were talking about this maybe like two or three years ago. I'm like, by the way, what did you think when you came like, you know, in 97 to train with me? Like, what was your impressions after the first day? He goes, bro, he goes, we went upstairs, we were sitting in the car. And he goes, and you left? And me and Frank was like, dude, I can't drive. He goes, can't drive? He goes, no. He goes, we couldn't close our hands. Yeah. Literally. He goes, we sat there for like an hour until like we started feeling the back of our hands. And, yeah. you know, and I kind of like did a number on yeah. it. But, you know what? He goes, Frank left and said, Jesus, where was this for the 25 years I was in NYPD? This is the shit we were looking for. Yeah. And that's, what they, that's usually the response I got. Like, hey, this is what I'm looking for. Yeah. You know? Like, I, I am a huge fan of, of boxing. Like, and not as a sport, but I think that it's... You know, it's one of the most revolutionary, like, um, yeah, uh, you know, hand to hand. And I'm not a boxer, like, I'm not, a, I'm not a great boxer, um, but I just, I appreciate it. However, uh, the thing about boxing also is that in a fight, um, even if, even a lot of like really well trained boxers, if they get in a street fight, they break their hand. You know, there, there's just so much that can go wrong yeah, if the guy, you know, kind of, and you and you catch it the wrong way. The thing about the edge of hand is like. And yeah. You still use a gun afterwards it, if you need yeah, it. Yeah, you remember, yeah. Me and Jim, one of the last times we were training, we were doing some basic self-defense stuff in his basement. And he goes, well, what do you think, what do you, what do you like to do against just a basic wrist grab? And I just was like, so he went and grabbed me an instinct and I just pulled it and I came right back. And yeah. he was like, bro, he goes, you're, he goes, how fast you are with those blows? Because that's what my special, that's what I specialize yeah. in. So like my thing, you know? And, um, we all have our, like, our specialty. I know yeah. Jim's specialty is probably in the real face. He's going to punch you right Just like, oh, I hate to. They both are going to probably punch you right in your face. Right. That's probably what you're going to say. Yeah. yeah. Jim's specialty really. is a heavy right hand. A heavy right hand. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and yours is one of the, I mean, you don't like see too many people doing these chops anymore nah. in martial arts or, or hand-to-hand -hand combat, yeah. but... Ooh, you catch somebody with one of those chops, you're oh, gonna, you're gonna, gonna you will fuck them up. I know you will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it works. I mean, I do it for so long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said it's so unconventional. Either guy takes a boxing stance, we would attack the card. So we would attack our arms to get to the side to clear the hands. Well, because you do the short, the short and long. Yeah. Right? So yeah. if I were, if I were coming out of a boxing stance, can, can can you guys see this? I, I can take take my little box down again, and you guys can. Uh, the side, but <laughs> this is just an you know. We're doing it in this kind of yeah, setting. Okay. So, so if a guy had a basic guard, yeah. Call it like this kind of stuff for street fighting because one, I would punch you right in the back of the hand and punch you in your own face, stuff like that. Yeah. But we would attack this guard. I'm not so much worried about you throwing punches because right. I got guards I can take with the edge of hand. Right. That's old school. Matter of fact, old school boxing had this. Isn't that Wing Chun also like you you attack a punch with a punch? Kind of. Yeah. Most systems do have that. Yeah. It's you know, a stop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But what we would do is just come in hard. Not in that way, way. This yeah. way, then turn and come in this way. But it's when you do it real quick. I can tell you, we you know, Jerry Cooney, the professional, he's a professional boxer back in like the seventies, eighties, big guy. Yeah. He taught at our police academy. You know, one of the guys had a connection, and he brought him in, and he seen me doing it, and he goes, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "Take a boxing stance," and I did it to Jerry Cooney. You know, he was like, <laughs> he was, "I've never seen anything like that before." You know, and yeah. he was even like, "He's a professional boxer." Yeah. I'm not saying I can take Jerry Cooney. Right. right that's right. not the point. Right. The point was. It's unconventional, and most people have never seen anything like that. Right, and, and that's the thing: is it like if not Jerry Cooney, but, but if you were to uh, stumble across a boxer, the idea is you're not squaring off, and he, you know, and he's not squaring off, and you're fighting him. The idea is you're coming from a loaded position, whether it's you know here or an interview position, you know, hands up, where you're loaded, and they don't even recognize that it's loaded. Yeah. And, and that was, I mean, and that goes, I think, a lot back to the World War II style. Is is it the moves? 
a lot of them come from a a loaded position that looks that looks harmless. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I know I had a buddy who had been on Miami Dade SWAT, which is one of the busiest SWAT teams oh, yeah. in the country, and they they considered an interview if, if a if a suspect took an interview position with them, they they it's would draw they would draw down. That's no, a threat. It's oh, a yeah. threat. But ninety nine percent of people don't understand. And, and so the interview position is basically it's like, hey, I don't want any problems. Well, right now I'm I'm loaded. You know, oh, yeah, you're right. I, I'm like, I don't want any problems, and I step in and smash. So, um, so like people don't realize how hostile, but not not how hostile, oh, yeah. but how aggressive the, these these seemingly. Oh yeah, uh, and these know. guys are learning this shit. I mean, that's what calls calls fortunate because I'm not going to get into everything about Carl. I mean, you can go and read it up on, on the internet, but the guy had a real background. The guy had a real background, yeah. a real shit. Yeah, he, he, had, he had a law enforcement background, and then, and then, something else. And then he had some other background. And then he had some other background. Part of town, part of other things, and you know. Jersey. Yeah, and uh, the reality of it is, like he said, the toughest guys he ever had to fight were prison guys. Prison, what he would call scout, street scout. He goes, not some martial art guy. He goes, the far, hardest fights I ever had, he ever had to fight. He always said that. We're street guys that came up in the street. That came up, didn't know their father, you know, were beaten by the, 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 the spouse's, you know, fiance, whatever. And they just came up in the street. He goes, they were the toughest guys that he ever had to fight. Not so much trained martial art guys, because martial art guys are kind of predictable, you know. Um, and that's the whole thing, too. If, let's say you like boxing, and you did three months of boxing, three days a week, and you got pretty good at throwing yeah. hands, you know. And then you get a beef with somebody who just happens to be a Golden Gloves boxer. Yeah. Well, you play his game. Yeah. Like Carl always said, never play the other guy's game. You're going to lose. Yeah. You get your ass kicked. It's real simple, you know? Yeah. So that was what Fairburn was saying was even a highly skilled judoka, a boxer, that if you attacked, this was Fairburn's model. Attack, attack first, and keep on attacking to the enemy's no longer a threat. But that's up for you to decide. I would say unconscious or in a military situation, he's waxed. He's yeah. dead. And um, Carl, when I remember one time, he never sat in front of Carl's house, and we were sitting out there, he was smoking. At this point, I probably had like 10 years with him. I said, let me ask you something. I go, if you had to tell me one thing, whether it be a technique, a concept, a principle, what would it be in regards to a, a real fight? We're not talking about a bar brawl. We're talking about someone trying to ice you, trying to kill you. One or two more people, right? He was like, took a puff. He's like, do your worst, fast and first. Yeah. Because that's all you really need to know. How you get there is really hard. Yeah. hard and keep on Exactly. Yeah. So the guy's a puddle. You know, yeah. and that was it. And he was really right about that. Yeah. And again, it could be from lethal, even as law enforcement. You see a guy, you give a guy time, and I see it all the time, and you give him time to think, worst worst thing you can do. Yeah. You know, sometimes even in a, in a street situation, I walk out here, I get confronted by two guys, and they're doing their whatever. Hey, bro, you got the time? Hey, bro, you got a light? You know, they're trying to get me to think. Yeah. You know, you might want to throw something right back at him. Hey, don't I know your mother? And for a split second, it's going to fuck him up. Yeah. And then you, you got to hit him. Or yeah. go the other way, whatever. Yeah. You know, that's an example. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, and then Fairbairn said that. It doesn't matter how tough anybody is. If you just attack them, keep on attacking them, you're probably going to win 90% of your fights. Yeah. Speaking you know? of which, you brought along some uh, yeah. accessories. Yeah. 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 I mean, like everybody's familiar with flashlights and how you can use them as you are sick to blind people. The whole blinding thing is cool. I, I would never bet my life on blinding somebody, but it is a tactic to use. But just having what would be considered a Yawara stick. That, as a fist pack in your hand, one good shot across the temple or the neck, the guy's going to be unconscious. 
or it's going to open him up for other things. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, Carl's big thing was like, I mean, he loved edge weapons too, but impact weapons. And this is a custom made blackjack that he actually bought. Brother, I've never even seen blackjack in actual life, like outside of spy Yeah, I mean, this right here, when law enforcement actually was able to be cops, you know. <laughs> but you don't have to, if you have to come to the point where you got to do that to somebody, you're going to kill this, I would kill him. Yeah. But you don't need to do that. You can choke up on it and use that much of it right to the, sol right to the solar plexus, and that's why you're going to end the fight. Uh, I was talking to, um, I was talking to a, a, an old, uh, old Baltimore cop uh, one time, and uh, and you know, uh, he was a he was a Baltimore cop like in the uh, holy fuck. Is this is there a spring in here? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Spring, it's just a weighted spring, basically. Yeah, 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 he was a Baltimore. He was a. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Baltimore cop in like the uh, 40 or 50s, I think 50s, 60s, I can't remember when. Anyway, they, so they used to have the wooden uh, billy clubs, oh, right? Which I guess were uh, quite a bit uh, different. Different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. They would, yeah, they would, they would film it. <laughs> but the thing is, is it, uh, he, he would say that a lot of times they would keep the billy clubs, they would keep them up their sleeves mm -hmm. and they just let them slide down just into the palm yeah. of their hand like that. And they and then they they, they go up to use and like they just like pat them on the side of the head like what are you doing and, and it looks completely innocuous already but it, like, like, it was just a gentle pat with, with the head they actually, just, like, they actually have palm saps oh yeah yeah okay you, you slip it on and then there's a lead weight right here when the trap mm -hmm. of the leather and that's you know just walk up to somebody hey come here you know and just do it. I just need to do that yeah. I need to get you right behind the elbow hey yeah. come here like you were just saying with that old time cop. I, I think impact weapons are a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, this is, these are sack clubs, right? A lot of cops there wearing the plastic knuckle, the yeah. ones I had from uh, back in the day. But this has powdered lead. You know, one shot from this, again, you're just not going to take a shot. Yeah. But you don't have to hold off and hit somebody full blast. Just a shot right to the, uh, the mental foreman right there. Boom, that's it. You know, and then go and do what you got to yeah. do. Well, well you know, even, even if somebody has a guard and you hit him, you're oh, yeah, gonna, I'm gonna punch you in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And as I'm going high, another concept would be if I go high, then I'm gonna go low. Yeah. That's why Carl always pushed World War II combatants was the steel toe boots. Yeah, because she kicks you across the shit. You're not gonna really steal it up. Or no joke. Uh, Bruce Siddle, I think, uh, uh, what, uh, was it PPC or PPT, whatever he yeah. was using? He, he was going back to a lot of that stuff. You know, a lot of the shin kicks, a lot of the brachial stunts. And a lot of his brachial stunts weren't even coming from. From like an axe hand, he would just he would throw a cross just like that, That's what just, just like that. And most guys, when they see you know like a cross coming for their face, they actually open up for you. Yes. Because 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 they're they're they think they're going to get punched in the face, and you're actually just going for the side of their neck. And uh, I had a buddy uh, right after right after uh, a civil course, I had a buddy get in a in an altercation on the street and just. One shot, just one. It looked like a tap. It, it wasn't a, a big axe hand coming down. It wasn't anything like that. It was just a cross. It looked like a tap, and the guy just fell down. I was like, huh. That's <laughs> Well, I mean, we know it works because we all did it to each other in class. Like, you're walking around hitting each other on the back of the head, and you know. And the, and the other thing is, in the real world, not competition, not perceived what, what you're going into. Right. I walk out at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm winning. And maybe the guy thought he could strong arm me just with his hand. And then something like this comes out, and then I guess I'm getting shanked. Right. Or I'm getting stabbed. Right, right. The guy might think, I could strong arm this motherfucker. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he finds himself in a shitstorm. Yeah. And now it comes out the blackjack or the, the third. There's a perfect uh, story Charlie Nelson used to tell people. Um, 
guy tried to mug a, I think an Italian soccer player that was over here for the Olympic tryouts. This is going back a long, long time ago. And being in strong, good shape, you know, he tried to get the guy to basically take off. Yeah. The guy wasn't having any of it. So, boom, he just hits him one shot, knocks him down, figures, fight's over. Yeah. The street scout pulls out the pocket piece and dumps five in his chest and kills him. Yeah. Because he didn't go over there and finish him off with a steel toe boots. Yeah. So you got to decide how far you're going to take it and sure. what the situation is. Because sure. a lot of times that happens. A guy, you know, because it's a lesser charge, let's say, right. off strong arm, and then all of a sudden, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? Right. Now the weapon comes out. And, and not only that, pride's in it now and things like that. Oh, yeah. a lot of things. Especially these boys are watching. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember one situation Carl was in. He goes, I got out of the car. guy dropped me off. We were on a corner. This one, there was actually pay phones, you know. And he goes, I'm on the pay phone. I'm watching this guy get out of the car, and I watch the car go around and pull over here, and I see this guy coming right toward me. He goes, the guy got like right up on me. He goes, I took the phone. He goes, I switched the face, ripped the cord out, and I just started hitting hit him with the phone, you know? And he goes, what's doing up the head? And I just left. Yeah. Simple things like in New York, when he was living in New York City, yeah. he'd get on a bus. He goes, I would always get a big, large black coffee. And I'm sitting there, he goes, that's going to go right in your face if I have a problem with something. You know yeah. I mean? That's just the thinking that you, you have to, it's not paranoia. It's just, oh, you're paranoid. No, it's not paranoia. Yeah. Because when you least expect it, that's what happens. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, yeah. firearms are beautiful. Too many people, too, that with the firearms, well, I'll just shoot them. I'll just do that. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's, that sounds good. Or, or an edge weapon. There comes a point where you're pulling an edge weapon out and you're shanking somebody. Yeah. You better be prepared for the consequences. Yeah. Especially with DNA and everything else, yeah. you know. I mean, it's a beautiful thing, but, you know, you got to be... Uh, yeah, you know, some of these, I mean, as long as you're not, like, king of somebody's skull, like, a lot of these are super effective, less than lethal. Yeah. Like, you don't have to take it to the edged weapon or to the firearm state. Yeah. And in New York, I mean, the, you can forget about the firearm states. Like, that's not... You can yeah. forget about the nuts thing. You can forget about anything. Yeah, I, I, you know... But the colonel's always going to have it. it it's, <laughs> it's funny, because when I, like, um, I didn't... I lived in New York for maybe five years or six years, and then one day, uh, over <laughs> Park Slope, I was walking down the street, and, whoop, cop car, like, hits me, and I'm like, Okay. Uh, obviously, I look like somebody who did something, and they get out, and they're like, uh, "What's that on your pocket?" And I go, "Nothing. It's just a, a spider co, and like a summons right there." They took it, and I get a summons because you can have a blade that's three inches, but you can't have it clipped on your pocket. Yeah. So they recently overturned one of the laws. Yeah. Did they? That was, that was fucking a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what it was. I, it was something like if they could flick it open. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was a thing. Is it? I I realized how lucky I was when I read that law because um, if if they gave it if they gave it a, a flick, you know, if they gave it a little wrist and it opened, they would designate it a gravity blade, which was like a felony. Yeah, right? yeah. So it, was it, was a, it was a good bust yeah. for an NYPD. Oh, yeah. Two kids that got locked up by the blades, you know, not too long ago, and they came up to me like, yeah, we were in a city, bar, we got we got arrested on like. I went I went through a New York City municipal building one time. Had to go through a metal detector, and put my backpack in it. Didn't think anything of it at all. And they find in there, I did not re remember at all. I had my karambit in there. Uh -huh. Really, one of those really nice yeah. box karambits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the woman pulls that out. She's like, what's this? <laughs> and I showed her, I'm like, it's a karambit. I'm sorry, I totally forgot it was in there. She's like, well, that's interesting. I was like, for sure I'm going to jail. And she's like, well, come, come get it on your way out. I was like, wow, damn. Like, it's a shame that it comes to that because... Yeah, you know, we can get into that whole subject, but it's a, it's a shame because the criminal is always going to find a way. Sure. 
to get what he wants to get. Sure. He's not, you know, yeah, purchasing yeah. a farm legally. You know, he's going to carry something illegally. And if they ban them all tomorrow, there's no gun. Guess what? There's always going to be a gun. The cop on the corner that's sitting in his patrol car is going to have a gun. That's yeah. why. I get well, what, what do you think when you see like all this crazy stuff? Like I saw it when I was in London a few months ago, and there's signs everywhere like Billy's been knifed free for six months. Like <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. And apparently there's some commission in, in the UK that recently said like. There's no place in the modern world for sharp-pointed blades. Yeah. I guess they didn't learn their lesson from World War II when they were disarmed themselves. Sometimes it jacks up again. Well, and it's what's like, great is... It's, it's just stupid. It's, it's, like, it's like, wow. What's great is these are all people who have federal protection, yeah. you know? Um, and, and in the civilian world, so many of the, of the outspoken critics of, you know, various, you know gun laws or, 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 or whatever or, uh, have bodyguards. They have armed bodyguards. They have retired cops who are, are you know, carrying and it's like, you guys don't need guns but my family, we need protection. We need I'm, armed protection. I mean, I'm for a second amendment. You know, I feel like you, know, you, you should be able to carry. The only thing I would say that comes along with that, you know, when you think about like, the thing is some of the people that you know that they could go and get a permit to carry that without any training, you know. I, I would say you gotta have the thing. You gotta have some kind of training. I, I, That's the only thing I would say. Outside of that, I, like, I, 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 I like. I don't. It's all confusing to me, and because I don't, I don't pretend to know. Like, well, I mean, it's, I, it's, 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 the, hypocr- it's the hypocrisy you're commenting on. I mean, it's, it's like uh, you know, here we're having our uh, climate summit, and here come all the like royal family flying in their private jets, like right. Gulfstream G5. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and they're telling us like, you know, you can't drive your car. You're immoral if you drive a car right. to work there. Yeah. Right. It's like what? Right. <laughs> the, the whole the whole message is like, let them eat cake. Yeah, that's exactly you know, what it is. It's like, hey, you can rent that electric scooter for a dollar an hour. Hour and drive that across town if you need to go somewhere, Dave. We're, yeah. we're having our fucking gold streams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, politics. Well, you know, the whole thing is just a fucking. Plus, uh, it's bizarre. But hey, if you guys have any questions for uh, Clint, ask him. We'll, we'll run this for like another like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, sounds before good. We, before we roll out. So if you got any questions did, for Clint. Did we miss anything? Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we, that we missed or anything like that? Uh. How do I know you again? <laughs> you can tell that story. You can tell that story. No, it's just funny that the whole group of us, how we all know each other. Like, I met Jack through Jim West, mm-hmm. and then we trained a couple times at gyms. They came down to my place, and uh, I met Dale, because I was at Dale's 6th uh, Street Black Belt when Jim promoted Dale Comstock to 6th Street Black Belt, so I got to meet Dale, and then later on, uh, shoot the crap with him back at gyms. I met you back in 2000, and late 2001. When you call me from wherever, and I'm like, yeah, okay, buddy. Yeah, so, me. so I, uh, so I, I, you know, I mean, I, I train, or I, I used to train. I haven't been training lately, but, but I used to go wherever I could to find somebody to train with and learn from, and, and always had an interest in it. And I don't remember how I came. A, it was probably like on Bullshito or or something. We had our site at the time, so it might have been the original Cutterfighter site. Yeah, but I, but I don't. I don't even know how. Uh, maybe it was. Maybe it was Applegate's book that mm-hmm. led me in that direction. I remember, but but I sort of kind of got in my mind this idea of you know this this old you know this combatives you know the old style stuff, and um, so I started doing research and there there were some people out there who were like I could just read their resumes mm-hmm. and know they're bullshit you know or whatever, um, and then then I came across Carl's name. Mm-hmm. And um, and 
and, and found you guys and I was out of the country at the time and you, you can tell the story from there. In some faraway place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you called me on a sat phone or something and you're talking to me, you're probably getting an email and I think then you call me and I said, yeah, call me at this time and you're telling me a little bit what you could tell me at the time and I'm like hearing other stories from people. I'm like, yeah, okay, bro. I'm like, you know, I wasn't trying to be all super scroll. No, all I, all I said is, hey, I really want to train with you guys. I'm not in the country right now, but I'll be back on these days. Do you guys have anything going on? And it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. You're out of the country. I got it. <laughs> and then you did. You came. And uh, it was great because that's how we, we met. And then Pat O'Donnell. Pat O'Donnell. He was Mike there. Uh, yeah. Mike C. And yeah. another good guy. Yeah. That they might try to get on. And uh and yeah, then I met you through the Ranger Network in New York City, yeah. and just by happenstance, we both knew you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I you had a software party or something. I remember seeing the pictures with like him. Oh shit! Jim. Was that it? Yeah, that was, it was somebody's birthday. And I'm like, how the hell I knew it? Was, it might have been my birthday. Yeah, I think it was your birthday. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. And you guys all had a picture. I'm like, wait a minute, that's Dave. I'm like, wait, that's him. I'm like, that's super. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. so, so, somebody's asking about uh, tasers. Uh-huh. Uh, what do they play in all this? What are the limitations of a taser? Don't carry them. Never have. Um, I think they're cool. Um, right now in New Jersey, I mean, where I work, I work as a federal law enforcement officer, but where I work, there's always talk about going to them. Mm-hmm. I, that's good. I mean, I think they're good. So, so again, if there's those limitations. I always expect that it's not going to work. Definitely. So, I mean, I think they're great. You know, mm-hmm. you know it work, they work. You know, not all the time. Nothing's I, I've been tased before. I know they were. Yeah. <laughs> so, I've never been tased. Yeah. I've never been not tased. Not fun. Pepper sprayed about 10 times. But yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I'll put it this way. I get tased. The next thing I know, I'm on the ground and I hear someone screaming at the top of their lungs and I realize that's me. That's my, yeah. disembodied, <laughs> my disembodied voice. I shouldn't say I haven't been tased. I've been zapped over the stomach. That's the call got me once. Now, second of different than tasers, though, right? Yeah. 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 And what's the difference? The taser is that the two prongs go into you and you ride the lightning for, like, yeah. what, seven seconds? I think so, yeah. 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 It would be set, I believe, too. But, uh, like I said, I don't carry them. Um, I don't know too many people I do in Jersey. Now, are stun guns effective or no? Uh, they could be. Depends how you use them. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what's the future going to be like for cops? Are new training programs coming in? Are they improving and adapting to improve? You know, it's. I think firearms, though, has come a long way. I gotta say, being a firearms instructor, medical, be I mean, I gotta talk for like where I work now, but I've worked for several different agencies. I worked for a state agency, a local, and I work for, as a federal law enforcement officer. We get a lot of training, um, and good training at that. I have to say, like, they send our guys out to firearms schools, well known guys, a lot of medical training. We have medical training staff. So, we get a decent amount of training. Even we even get a lot of uh, defensive tactics training. Where a lot of guys they go through that six month academy, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Like they don't they don't get nothing. I mean, they, you know, every other year they might get their ASP or PR twenty four training. You know, renewal, and you know, and their handguns twice a year. You know, and then that's it. You know, I mean, what is it like? It's like firing one magazine at a paper plate or something. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jersey. I believe it's uh, I think the handgun for days uh, fifty rounds a night is. 50, so that's about oh, 100 rounds. Yeah. But still not a lot. But it's not a lot. It's really considered a short. Yeah, yeah. In the academy, it's a little bit more. Obviously, you're doing more training, more repetitions and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, my personal opinion is, you know, you should be running through that course once a month by the you know, money-wise. Um, 
Steve wants to know, uh, I guess this is a question more for me, if we're uh, going to have George Hand on the live stream. And, uh, I mean, it would be awesome to have him in studio, but he is out in Albuquerque, I believe. But I do want to have him on, and that's the thing I've been working on is to try to have it so that we can interview people remotely. So stand by for all that. Yeah, we, we, uh, we just purchased software that should help us do that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I, I, I will figure it out, or I will pay someone to come here and figure it out for me, one way or the other. Um, Andrew asks, how would the OSS fight training compare to that received by a group like Merrill's Marauders? Almost the same. It was almost the same. Yeah, most of, most of the training was either called Judo, Combat Judo, and it was a combination of, you know, Combat Judo back then was considered like a defender. Yeah. You know, if you look at any, matter of fact, if you look at 1942, Unarmed Combat for the American Soldier that the Army put out, it's like 365 pages. I think the next edition was 1946, there was 12 pages. So they found out kind of like what worked and what didn't work, you know. Um, if you, yeah, so. if you guys can ever get your hands on any of the old manuals, like they're fast. The old OSS manuals? The old about yeah. sabotage yeah. and espionage? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fucking fascinating. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and they, I mean, even just like an old, like an old Marine Corps combat hand-to-hand uh, uh, -hand manual, like, like it, it, it's... Bro, I have a Vietnam-era manual on... Um, I think it's primarily on infantry combat. It's like the kind of guide you could give to like a corporal or a private. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was shocked some of the shit in there. They're like, oh yeah, what you do is take an OD green jungle sock, fill it up with sand, hit center <laughs> in the back of the head. I'm like, holy fuck, you'll never see this in a, in a TM or FM today. There's and no way. It's lie. amazing what they, when I see some of the books that were printed, you know, like I even seen like when I was over, I taught in Sweden a couple of years back. I was teaching uh, at the Land Warfare Center in Sweden. They're combatants instructors I was brought over. And then uh, the first day I was there, I taught it. They were like, I guess like a regional law enforcement mm -hmm. academy teaching them point shooting. And that's a perfect example. I went over there and I'm teaching the cops. And I'm like, all right, line up where you guys normally would line up at. And they get it seven meters or seven yards. I'm like, so what do you guys do? You start here and then go in? And they're like, no, we start here and we go back. So they would go from seven yards or seven meters backwards. Yeah. And I'm like, you do know statistically gunfights happen from zero to about four yards, 21 feet. I go, so you're totally missing the whole, what's really important, yeah. you know? And I was like, obviously I couldn't change that for them, but they're actually sending a whole bunch of people over here from Sweden to train with them, oh, from law enforcement, you know? And, um, you know, it's amazing what other countries do when you see it. I'm like, well, you know, why? Like, well, what's the thinking behind that? You know, as a cop, I'm gonna be close to somebody interviewing them, you know? So I need to have those methods of having a gun away. If I'm standing here with him, this is a piece of, oh, you always have to use your sights. At this distance, I'm gonna pull my gun out and do that. That's the whole point of this arm. Yeah. I'm not gonna put the gun out that, that close to him. I'm not. You want? That's fine. But yeah. that didn't make much sense to me. So again, a lot of it is just the verbiage that you use. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have night sights. Like you brought up a perfect example. If you read Shooting to Live, Fairburn actually had the armor put a shotgun bead that's on the end of a shotgun, just a silver bead on the end of his 1911 and had it polished. So any glint of oh, light shit. could be picked up on the front of his 1911. So what were they talking about? Right, front sight, yeah, focus, yeah, yeah. or, but also picking up on that front sight. Yeah. You know, yeah. today we got the Trijicon and stuff like yeah. that. So again, Carl would be like, yeah, because these guys don't fucking read anything. He, they used to drive him nuts because he could go back into his library and pull something out and say, okay, well here, look here. They did this, they knew about this yeah, stuff, but yeah. they only had so much technology. Right. Just like Fairman thought the 1911, the 45, was gonna be a great knockdown gun power. But he also said that really wasn't 
the case with the 1911 that the Japanese, uh, or what was it? I think it was, it was the Filipinos we built it for. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, literally, the Moros. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's one, I forget that the Chinese, they weren't there. They carried a 380, but there was another gun that they had over there. I can't remember. It might have been a 455, but uh, basically that round was the size of a 9mm, and that had the most, from what Fairburn's seen, the most killing power, lethality was basically a 9mm, and today 9mm has come full circle, right. and then he went to the 40, yeah. and everybody's going back to the 9mm, yeah. yeah. you know? All right, we got some more questions here. Are martial arts watered down all around the world, or just here in the U.S. of A? <laughs> Probably everywhere, you know, I'm not, I think they're watered down, but if you go to like a 5 and dime dojo, I hate to say it, a 5 and dime dojo, let's face it, what do you know? You gotta look at these, you gotta, like anything else, you gotta research stuff. Mm -hmm. People ask me all the time, oh, where can I go to learn the stuff that you teach? I can't really give you an answer because yeah. I'm me and Carl was him and you'd have to come and train with me. I, I think That's a really good example is Taekwondo. Like, I have known some bad, like, mammer jammers who only train Taekwondo. I mean, I, I, I've seen a dude, a buddy of mine, like, lay three dudes out with these spinning kicks. You say, nobody will ever use a spinning kick in the street. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen, I mean, I've seen it and it, like, he crushed them, um, but that was his. The, he was good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He practiced it. But Taekwondo is also a very marketable, mm. uh, very water. Yeah. It, I, I, it's one of the first ones I learned. Yeah, I did Taekwondo. Uh, it's one of those arts that gets a bad name because of of how watered down it is. In you know, I, and probably not just U.S. Probably throughout Europe. Probably, I mean, probably like. In a lot of places, because people don't like to get hit. And it's funny because you look at the original, the original Taekwondo, and yeah. Rando. So you, you yeah, yeah. yeah. I have the original, the guy who found the Taekwondo. I got yeah. his book at home. Okay, his original book. Wow. It's really showed to come karate. Yeah, you know, for the most part. Um, then there's like how Rando. There's other knockoffs of that. You know? Yeah. And um, but again, it's just it's not the more people. What I would say is forget about the martial art, the name, and all that stuff. You got to look at the instructor. Yeah. And what and, and and see what he's about. Go look at these schools. Voice your opinion what you're looking for. So, you know, he might have it, but it might take a long time for you to get to there. Yeah. But there's no magic pill. There's no secret. You know, you're not going to be able to go like this and he's just going to drop. That shit doesn't exist. The touch of you know? death doesn't Touch work. of death, man. Remo Williams told me that, like, handing the vulture. You know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Man, great pull. <clears throat> Holy cow, great pull. So, anyway, yeah, you man, gotta, you gotta check out. Williams taught me how to shoot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is, where was it? Um, what ideal ratio of police training time compared to time uh, they spend out on patrol? I, I guess he means like how, how often should cops go in and receive hand-to-hand -hand combat or shooting training? Uh, I mean, like the ideal question would be every day, right? Uh, perfect, yeah, every day. In a perfect I mean, world. Just even in the academy, if you've got a six-week, I mean a six-month academy, and you train Monday through Friday for an hour, defensive tactics. Not six months. That's a time. You could come out and be freaking pretty good. Yeah. Or have, you know, be able, you should be able to handle yourself. You know, size plays a difference. You know, um, being a man versus a, being a female. You know, people don't want to talk about certain things. And I watched it. I'm like, it makes a difference. You know, I'm six foot one. Yeah. If I'm going to try to fight you, Clint, like, you, you got the weight advantage on Oh, yeah. I'm 230 pounds, six foot one. A girl that's five foot, I don't care if you're Charlie Rousey. You ain't putting me in cuffs. It's not gonna happen. You know, that's yeah. just, I don't care who you are. No female's gonna do it. Yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate enough, and I'm not bragging because there's nothing to brag about. But thank God, through my training, my mindset, and everything I did get from Carl, that there hasn't been a situation since I've been in law enforcement that I've never had. I never had a problem 
getting somebody in the cuffs or getting a situation under control. And I'll be honest with you, it was never nothing secret or whoop de doo It was so basics, basics, and getting it done with quick and not giving the guy time to think for the most part. Um, you know, someone wants to know about defending from a large dog attack. Large <laughs> dog attack? Yeah. It depends on the. I mean, I, I mean, as a police officer, I I have my ways of dealing with that. Uh, <laughs> no, there are things that you can yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've been attacked by a dog, so I know. I mean, I had plastic surgery in my face and my neck because I got attacked by a dog that took half my face off. Jesus. Yeah, when I was younger. I wasn't a cop at the time, but uh, so I know what that feels like, you yeah. know? And uh, So your techniques weren't that solid then? No, 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 no. But uh, dealing with a dog is, I mean, there are actually, I got a book uh, from Klingen, uh, Stauffer. He was a second degree black belt, a uh, Russian guy. Uh, or German, I forget, but I got his judo book. Um, he actually has the dog grab it onto his arm and they would come down, now whether this is a worker, and come down on the base of the neck to break its neck. I mean, I have kicked the dog right between the, the front legs with a good front kick with a pair of boots on, and that stopped that real quick. Matter of fact, the dog was just laying there afterwards. Um, I've also seen a, a fellow officer with a 40 caliber shoot a pit bull that came after us, and the pit bull took off, went around the house, and came back out even more pissed off. <laughs> The captain, like, my captain was on the side of me on the team that I was on, and he hands me, he's like, here, try this. With the M4, 55 grain, uh, full metal jacket, boom, I mean, that dog, like, the heart was just snatched out of him, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that, like, prevailing, I mean, uh, is generally giving the dog the, the, the arm, the arm or on, and then, you know, whether you come down on top or come up for the throat or, you know, um, you know, even rabbits. Yeah. Eyes. Oh, I made a good point. Not to cut you off, but how how fast the human psyche. And he bought him a dog. You know, think how we fear a dog. Yeah. You know, and then only there's one thing that it can do. Yeah. It can bite you. It doesn't have fists. It doesn't have feet. You know, it's, and it's how, how, how we fear that. You know. Yeah. Uh, there's a situation where two dogs were let out on him after. Um, and that's he, he just he just hit the streets and somebody had stole something from him and he needed to go get a car battery. So he goes, I go there and I see my car battery. He goes, that's my car battery. And the guy closed the door on him and then let out two German shepherds. He goes, being 230 pounds and just fucking pissed off. He goes, these dogs came at me. I was just like, ah! He goes, they just they put the brakes on and they took off. He goes, my wife was there. You can ask her. So that's always that maneuver, you know, yeah. but you can also do it with some guys I know. Matter of fact, uh, CJ Karachi, he was the original SEAL Team 6 guy. Um, when he was a cop down in Florida, he had, uh, and I did the same thing, leather, you know, like the pump metal, the leather braces yeah. with the uh, the points, the studs. Oh, yeah. Wear one of those with the points on it underneath your shirt. You have to deal with a dog. One of bites down on that, you're going to be biting down if you're wrong. Yeah. That's one way you protect yourself with gloves, wearing, again, wearing a good pair of gloves. I won't just punch and using the snap with a good pair of gloves on that shit. But there's nothing, you know, like I said, you just never know. It's yeah. that, that fear of getting bit. But yeah. you got to do something. Yeah. I mean, grab it and pin them down on the ground, grab them by the windpipe like anybody else. They don't yeah. just. Do what you got to do, unfortunately. Yeah. Training with a heavy bag. Uh, what are some other good equipment to have for uh, people who train at home? I mean, I don't even know if they still make them, but the Spar Pros, they're pretty nice. You're the, talking body, about the bodies that go on the, on the base and stuff, the bobs, the, the Spar Pros. Yeah, yeah, I got both of them. I got three of those. I don't know if those they, are great. Yeah, yeah, we had those. They're good. Nothing re uh, really replicates, especially with the blows that we do, than the human body. And like putting pads on, having somebody else there. Or making stuff. I to be honest with you, most of the stuff that was sold commercially, Carl would break within a session or something. So eventually, in, in his basement, when I first started training him, 
we just built stuff that was spring-loaded with duct tape and pads and two-by-fours, and we just made our own stuff because the average stuff is not... Yeah. I know I chopped Norris pad that, like, makes your fist punch and you put it out with a pot of in his basement car comes out, well, my daddy, reverse punch. I mean, uh, yeah, and punched this freaking thing, and the spring flew out of it, and the timer flew out of it. It was great. Carl, Carl was like Jim, and Carl was made of iron. He spent so much time, even... <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.